morning, we are actually not going to look at the Gospel of Luke. We're going to take a few weeks off. For one, we ended our session, our home group session last week. And next week, we have um, Palm Sunday and then Easter. And I think we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark. And so I thought, well, if we're already going to take a two-week hiatus, let's just take a three-week hiatus. And so today, we're going to look at Joshua chapter 4. I thought it a good idea if we're spending so much time in the New Testament to spend a little bit of time in the Old Testament. Let me give you just a wee bit of context here before we begin. Last week I mentioned Moses and the fact that he was not able to go into the promised land and he died kind of looking out over uh, the land which God had promised the Israelites. Uh, After that, the next leader that came was Joshua. And the time had come after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness to finally go into the promised land. The only thing keeping them uh, from the promised land was the swollen uh, Jordan River. They had to figure out how are we going to get across this river. And so God said to Joshua, you don't worry about that. I am going to dam the river up. And then you all, much like perhaps the Red Sea, when you crossed over the Red Sea, you are going to be able to go right across that Jordan River and into the promised land. And so that's exactly what they did. And that's what leads us to Joshua chapter 4. When the entire nation had finished crossing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, select 12 men from the people, one from each tribe, and command them. Take 12 stones from here, out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood. Carry them over with you and lay them down in the place where you camp tonight. Then Joshua summoned the 12 men whom he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe. Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. And each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites. So that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off in front of the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And when it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the Israelites a memorial forever. The Israelites did as Joshua commanded. They took up 12 stones out of the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua. Carried them over with them to the place where they camped and laid them down there. Joshua set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. And the priest who bore the Ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people crossed over in haste. As soon as all the people had finished crossing over, the ark of the Lord and the priest crossed over to the front of the people. The Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over armed before the Israelites as Moses had ordered them. About 40,000 armed for war crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for battle. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. The Lord said to Joshua, command the priest who bear the Ark of the Covenant to come up out of the Jordan. And Joshua therefore commanded the priest, come up out of the Jordan. 
And when the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the middle of the Jordan and the soles of the priest's feet touched dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. Those 12 stones that they had taken out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal saying to the Israelites, when your children ask their parents in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel crossed over the Jordan here on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we crossed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and so that you may fear the Lord your God forever." Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God and let us pray. God, be with us on this day that we might be listening for you and for you alone. Bring this story thousands of years old alive to us. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. So one of the reasons I really wanted us to focus on this particular passage today is because I love how God, with great intentionality, is creating a sacred memory for the Israelites. God clearly could have just told the Israelites, just go across the Jordan and then just keep walking into the promised land, but he didn't. He wanted this to have remarkable significance. And so he had them take these 12 stones and put them up. And I love, one of the great things I love about this story is how it reminds us that no matter how much things change over thousands of years, they still say the exact same. Because he knew that when they put those 12 stones up there, he knew that children would begin to ask questions. And who here knows that children love asking questions, right? All four of my children are very inquisitive, but my third born is by far the most inquisitive. There is not a question that she does not think should be asked, which would be fine in and of itself, except for the fact that she is also a horrible whisperer. And so we have lived through many experiences, right, where we're out in public and maybe she sees uh, something that's a little different or someone who looks just a little bit different or whatnot, and she cannot hold herself back from, quote, whispering something about it. So over the last 10 years, we have developed this capacity now to either distract her or to very quickly, you know, in that ventriloquist-like way, ask me later, talk about it later. We will not talk about this now. Why? Because she loves to ask questions. Children have always been remarkably curious so that whenever it is that they see these stones, now perhaps after trying to climb up them or or maybe trying to throw one, but at some point when they see this odd makeup, they will begin to ask the question, why are these stones here? Part of the reason why I love this, uh, th- this, uh, this, I don't know, I'm still going to call it third grade Bible dedication that we do. 
because I love this Bible. In many ways, of course, it is also like this sacred stone, if you will. We, we make this rite of passage at somebody, this sacred memory that they look forward to. And what we need to be very mindful of is this. That when you give your child, when any of us give our children a Bible, that you are giving them a massive invitation to ask an inordinate amount of questions. Because the Bible, if it's read carefully or read at all, will almost always provoke questions. And one of the things that I've discovered over the years of being a pastor is that there are times when people, when parents are afraid actually to engage very much in the Bible because they are afraid that their children are going to ask them a question that they do not know the answer to. And so I want to just say from the very beginning to those of you who have given your children these Bibles, I want you to just embrace this reality. They will inevitably ask you a question that you do not know the answer to. And what this is, is a remarkable opportunity for you to simply participate. I know that it can be hard to not know the answer. At this point, you know, my eighth grader now, she asks these questions about math. And as soon as she says, hey, dad, I have a question about math. I do everything I can to hide the terror in my face. Because I know the odds of me knowing the answer are very slim. And it's very much the same when it comes to scripture. They are going to ask questions that you likely will not know the answer to. And if we allow our egos to get in the way, if we think, I don't want my parent, I don't want my child to think anything less of me, then it will inhibit us from simply saying, yeah, you know what? I don't know either. Just two weeks ago, literally two weeks ago, we were walking the parking lot after worship with, our, with my family and we're all there walking out to our cars, and, 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 and one of my, I think it was my second born, said, hey, Daddy, what does Calvary mean? And so I started to say, well, you know, Calvary. <laughs> Megan? <laughs> and Megan kind of hemmed and hawed. Now, look, I know that Calvary, is, it's, it's about the cross, you know? I remember singing lots of songs about Calvary, but as we were talking about it, I realized I knew it had something to do with the cross, but I, honestly, I couldn't remember where it was in Scripture. And so I had to actually Google this. I know this makes you feel so bad, but I had to Google, like, oh, it is in Scripture, but it's in the King James, and we don't do the King James, and we normally say, see, not just me, Golgotha. Usually that's what it is. It's usually more Golgotha is the, is the verbiage, right? It's this place where the cross was, but I did not know the answer. And so here is my encouragement to you. If even I as a pastor who should know these things, if I don't, I want to encourage you to not be afraid when you do not know the answer to a question about scripture. Just say, let's dive into this because here's the thing. You notice what it says. I think it's in verse 21. It says that when your children ask you, it says you answer them. It doesn't say your pastor should answer them. It doesn't say your children's director should answer them. We are here to help you. Let me be clear but it is the task, first and foremost, of the parent to wrestle with Scripture with their children, not anyone else's. Which, of course, begs the very next question, which makes this even more difficult passage. Because here's what it says in verse 6. It doesn't just say, tell me what those stones mean. It says, tell me what these stones mean to you. I hope you hear the difference there. In other words, it's remarkably personal. The question is not, hey, just what do they mean? 
what does God mean? What does it mean what God did? It's what does God mean to you? What difference, mom and dad, does the scripture and the stories of God mean to you? Which, of course, begs the question of whether or not we in our own personal lives are wrestling with scripture and wrestling with God. Are we grappling with God ourselves? The truth is, I just told the parents this, that as much as this is a rite of passage for the third grader, I think it's also oftentimes a rite of passage for the parents to ask every year as we do this third grade Bible dedication, what do they mean to me? What does scripture mean to me? What does God mean to me, right? Because, because children are incredible lie detectors and they will know if you are telling them one thing but you are living a completely different life. They will find out eventually. And so there is this great weight, if you will, in this, that we need to be honest with our children about Scripture, honest about our own wrestlings, but that we need to wrestle with these things on our own so that, as it says towards the end of our passage, so that when we do so, we can begin to give testimony to all the peoples in the world around who God is and what God has done in our lives. Now, I was thinking and looking over this, the final parts of this particular passage when I noticed something. It was brought to mind, and I, I realized that I've preached about this once here, I think, and a couple times at previous congregations, but I hadn't quite noticed it. And it's actually kind of hard for me to explain what my question is, so I'm going to do my best. Hopefully, it's not too confusing. Here's what it says right here. Let's look at this. It says, when your children, this is Joshua talking to the parents. When your children ask their parents in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel crossed over the Jordan here on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you crossed over. Now, I want to bold on the second section right here. Because the question is this. Is Joshua saying, here's what you say to the kids, and then he kind of looks over to the parents and says, because remember, this is what God did for you when you crossed over the Jordan, or is Joshua saying to them, you say all of this to your children, including the fact that the Lord your God, children, dried up the waters of the Jordan, children, for you, children, until you, children, crossed over. In other words, is he saying that the kids who may not have even been there, that they actually crossed over the Jordan as well? Now, that doesn't make much sense. And to most of our ears, we would think, well, that would be impossible. Why would he say at all? Why would we say to our kids, remember when God did this when you crossed over the Jordan? It doesn't make any sense. That said, I did read a commentary by Martin Woodstra who says, actually, that's not all that strange. That throughout the Old Testament, actually, that they are, they are continually having the identity of current living Israelites be embedded and intricately connected to the identity of those Israelites who have gone before. But again, I thought to myself, surely this does not mean this because we would never do this. We would never kind of say, you know, oh yeah, we did this when clearly we did not do this. And then I remembered what month we are in. What month are we in? March. When you think March, most of us 
think also March Madness. And then I remembered how nice I was to you all last week. Because I didn't even mention Purdue. I was tempted, but I like my job. So I decided not to say anything. I didn't say anything about IU, of course, because it wasn't until the next day that I could have easily said something about IU. So it's been a week. Are we feeling okay? I should have done this after the vote. That's uh, in hindsight. That was my mistake. But here's my point. And you've likely noticed this. But it's very interesting when we begin to talk about our teams, when we begin to talk about a team, let's say, like Purdue, right? When I hear Boilermakers talk about it, they say things like, how could we have lost? Why do we always lose? Why can't we rebound better, right? Why can't we shoot anymore? better than what we are doing? Why can't we play better defense? Why are we fouling? It's this fascinating thing, right? It looks, it's a little bit like this, right? It's like Steve Wentz, right? It's like, (laughs) it's as if he was actually playing the game, but he clearly was not playing the game. Now, you've noticed this, right? And sometimes maybe you've been in a group and, you know, everyone's talking about we and, and somebody, there's always kind of a smart Alex that's like, well, you know, you weren't even out there. Why are you saying we? And nobody likes that guy who says that, right? Because we love this sense of identity that even if we're not rebounding, we're not shooting, we're not fouling, there's this sense of community. We were out there, even if clearly we were not out there. Or think about IU. Right? Now think about IU, IU Hoosiers, we do the same thing, right? I mean, you guys are like, oh, you know, it would be weird to say, oh, they lost. It almost just feels odd to use that pronoun. Oh, they didn't do a very good job, right? Uh, you know, and, and so again, we use this we language. I have one for IU as well, as if we are the ones cutting down the nets. <laughs> now, do we remember what year this cutting down the nets happened last? 87, 1987, it's been a long time. Not as long as for Purdue, but it's been a long time. But now here is what is equally fascinating. If you are, I don't know, I didn't actually do the math, 35 years or younger, you weren't even born. And yet, if you went to IU and you say you're 30 years old and someone says, hey, when's the last time IU won? Oh, Would it feel strange at all to be like, ah, we haven't won since 1987? No, it would feel very natural. You would very likely, if they said, hey, when's the last time I, oh, they haven't won? That feels weird. You say, we. Why? Because we have this remarkable sense that even if you were not there, even if you hadn't even been born, We are a community. It is what happens. It is what shapes us. So you see the fact that all of a sudden they're teaching these children, oh no, this is for when we, it's when we walked across the Jordan. This is the kind of God we serve. God works through us. There's this remarkable sense of identity. See, this is why we've been talking about this tapestry of God's kingdom so much and why I keep saying it is important for us to see how we are connected with what 
Jesus Christ did with the early church all the way back here to when they crossed over the Jordan River. It was not them that crossed over the Jordan River. It was we who crossed over the Jordan River. We are a part of this remarkable testimony of God's kingdom. God works through us and has worked through us for thousands and thousands of years. It's why... Last Sunday, two Sunday evenings ago, when we began to talk about the property, why I did not start by simply saying, okay, here's what we need to do. Here's what we believe we are being led to do. No, no, no. We started with that sense of who are we? You see, what I want you to know is that if you are a part of ZPC, whether you were here or not, we were the ones who went out knocking door to door to see whether or not people would want to plant a church. We are the ones who began to meet and to worship in the middle school. We are the ones who in 1984, right after we started, sent people off to Colorado on a mission trip. We are the ones who said, hey, let's build a building here in 1987 and began to do so. We are the ones who sent off people down to Tennessee and Georgia in the 89 and 90 for habitat for humanity. We are the ones who helped build the sanctuary in the 90s. We are the ones who started Great Banquet in 1992. We are the ones who have opened up our building to 3 million people over the last 30 years or so. This is what we do. We are a people who breathe in and think mission is important here and who breathe out and think that mission is important out in the world. This is who we are. And when you become a part of what Zionsville Presbyterian Church is doing, you are not just bringing yourself and just adding it. You are joining a group of people for as long as we who have been here, who have always said mission and displaying the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. That is what we do because it is who we are. See, this is important. Because we all have to answer the question that the Israelites had to answer of their children, which was this. What do those stones mean? See, one of the things that's really crucial for you to be able to see, for us all to see, is that the stones in and of themselves, they meant absolutely nothing. Those 12 stones that they put there, you know, on the banks or in Gilgal to remember what God had done, they mean nothing in and of themselves. Why do they have significance? They have significance because of the simple fact that what they stand for is God being faithful. What they stand for is God allowing them to cross into the promised land. What they stand for is this new world to which they had been called and where they were, where they were eating and drinking, to this new world where they would go in and be called to welcome the stranger, where they would be called to care for the infants or the orphans and to care for the widows. Those stones, the only reason they had any significance was because they were pointing to something so much larger. And that is absolutely critical for us. Because we have got to be able to answer the question, what do these bricks mean? What does this building mean? I have these bricks that are up here on the stage. You may be wondering why, if you can't see them. Here they are. 
And the reason I have these bricks is because about, I don't know, I think it's like two, three months ago now, they were, uh, they were carting these away. You know, the windows that are out there where the chapel is right now, it was the original sanctuary about, built back in the 80s. And they were, they were just piling them up in these wheelbarrows and they were just carting them into the dumpster. And there was something within me that said, no, I don't want you to take all of them in there, right? There's some significance to this. Now, Megan would tell you, I oftentimes find a lot of significance in a lot of things that probably aren't that significant. But I just couldn't have them throw it all away. So I said, no, 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 just keep, you know, keep some of them. You know, can you just put them there? So they did. And so then Tim said, well, what do you want me to do with these? You know, I mean, we already have storage problems. I said, just put them in my office. <laughs> and so that's exactly what he did. Now, I thought at some point, you know what, I'm going to do something with these. I'm going to give them maybe to uh, charter members or maybe people who are here as a part of the original building. That's what I'm going to do. And I had these grand plans. But of course, they just sat there. For months, they've just kind of mucked up my office. It's already not in great shape, and they're just these bricks, right? People don't even hardly say anything about them anymore. They're just like, ah, that's Jerry. <laughs> and so then I realized I got to get them out, and so today was a perfect day for that. Left it, just in and of themselves, these, bri these bricks mean absolutely nothing. Let's be clear, nothing. But I've been thinking about these bricks and I was reminded of something that happened within the last couple of years. Within the last couple of years, we had a funeral here at ZPC. It was for a younger person. And so the family who's not members here at ZPC, members of another church, they realized, you know what, this is going to be, this is a big build. It's a, you know, our building is not big enough. There's going to be a lot of people that come here. And so could we use your building? So we said, of course, you can use our building. And I, you know, I always love just the sense of ZPCers, how quickly you know, facilities teams started getting everything ready. Our tech people started getting ready so that we could do overflow in the chapel. Our, our bereavement team as a part of our deacons started preparing things for them. Our, you know, we got the tables ready. We did administrative stuff, all those things. It was this kind of beautiful moment of seeing, seeing ZPC in this incredibly painful time. And we had probably around 1,000 people who came into this building. And shortly after that service, the family reached out and they said, you know what, we, just, we, we, want, you, we, we want you to know that we think it is remarkable that our community, that this community as a whole, this whole Zionsville Carmel area, that we have a place to gather in order to mourn. And you see, that got me to kind of continuing to think about this reality. That, that is, that's what... It's one of the things that these bricks signify to me. That it creates a space. In and of itself, it's nothing. But the brick was where the chapel was, which is where we had probably 150 people in overflow so that people could come here in order to mourn, in order to be with the family, in order to know that they had not been forgotten, in order to simply usher in their own sense of despair and loss. And these bricks, you may think, ah, oh, these, are, these are insignificant. What does it mean? Well, I can tell you one thing. To all those who gathered on that day and who were ever to come together in order to mourn, in order to lift up the family in order to try to worship in the midst of the pain these bricks meant so much more than just simply a brick it was a sacred space for them to come together and to be with one another in the presence of the almighty and see one of the things i was just thinking about it this week i said hey can you just let me know what did we do this week just this very week here at zpc 
And one of the things that you begin to understand as you think about what this building does and what these bricks mean is right after worship on Sunday, you may or may not know this. I'm gonna try to go through it fast because it's a lot and we only have so much time. Right after worship, our third graders went over and they started learning about the Bible. Why? Because this is a space for people to come together and for our children to understand the story of God. At the exact same time, our middle schoolers were back there and they were worshiping and learning how to worship and how to lead using their gifts and talents. Some were singing, some were playing the flute. Some are playing other instruments. Why? Because this is a place where we come together in order to do so. Last Sunday afternoon, we had a home group that meets in here. Why? Because they have 16 kids. And they're little. And so we created this space so that the parents could get together and they could learn about scripture and they could get to know each other. And at the same time, our kids would have a place to go to. Sunday night, people were in here. Why? Because a great banquet, men's great banquet closing. This was a space where people could come and talk about the grace of God. The next morning on Monday, you had a group of ladies primarily who come together to pray. Why? Because we believe that this community needs a place where people are praying actively for them and for the world. On that Monday night, we have women's BSF where they come in here, Bible study fellowship. Why? Because we want this to be a place where people are coming and learning about the prophets in the Old Testament. Then on Tuesday, we had a meeting of the deacons. Why? Because we gather up and we believe that people need to know that they are loved and cared for when they are grieving, when they're in the hospital, when they have a new baby, whatever else it may be. We say this is a space where people come together in order to learn how to love and to serve others. The next night, we had a men's dinner here. Why? Because we believe believe that this is a space for men to come in and to get to know each other. Men aren't very good at talking to each other oftentimes, and we want to create space where they can talk more than just about what happened to Purdue. <laughs> we want to be a space where they can come and talk about things that, if I can be so bold, are actually much more significant than that. The next day, we had, a, we had a line dancing. Primarily older ladies who come in here in the gym. It is the sweetest thing. Many of them, not even ZPCers, but I just kind of slowly walk when I go to the restroom and just look in there and there they are. They don't want me looking, but I do. <laughs> Why? Because in a community and in a world that says, oh, if you're older, why do you really matter? It's all about the youth. We want to say, no, 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 that is not true. And so we give space for them to come in and to dance and to keep moving their bodies, which we think are a beautiful thing to do. Why? What happens? We have choir rehearsal. Why? Because we want people to come in and to sing and to be able to lead and worship. Men's group Bible studies, loose threads that come in and sew things. And what do you do exactly with loose threads? I've forgotten. Knit, crochet, and embroider. I once walked up there and I left quickly. It was scary. <laughs> we have mops that come in here on Friday morning. They were here this past Friday morning. Why? Again, because we know that motherhood is hard and we want them to know that it's not hard, that, that we are here for one another. Sometimes people come, they have no faith whatsoever and we're able to begin to slowly begin to help them to see the, the importance of the gospel. We, of course, Thursday and Friday, we have a food pantry. Why? Because we want this, these bricks to mean that people can be fed if need be when they are hungry. Monday through Friday, we have Noah's Ark. Why? Because we want people to know that their children matter to us in the community. We have the lock-in on Friday night. Why? Because we are insane and because of the fact that we want our middle school, two of them, my own, to be able to come in and to know that they are loved. My middle schoolers cannot wait to come here. 
And we want to create a space where our children cannot wait to go into this particular space where they know they are going to see friends and where they are going to experience Jesus. I could go on and on, but let me also include that we have this sacred space from which people are sent out. There's a reason why people right now are in Egypt and Romania. And the reason is because they discovered it here in this place. These, I am here to say, I know sometimes people can say, oh, well, should we really just do this for ourselves? Let me tell you something. These bricks have absolutely nothing to do with something just for ourselves. For as long as ZPC has been here, this church has always been about sharing the love and the grace of Jesus with more than just ourselves. This is a living and breathing space. And we need to know why these bricks are here and what they mean to us. But now let me close with one last important thing to say. Craig Barnes makes this pretty remarkable point that reminded me of something I said several times years ago now, right before we started thinking about this building. We've been talking about it a little bit in the, in the congregation. And one of the things I said was that while we, want, we don't want to be foolish, we don't want to just do things that are just outlandish just to do them when it comes to these plans. I also want to be super clear that we need to be perhaps even more wary of doing something that we think that we can do on our own. In other words, if we think that we can do this property thing on our own, then I am here to tell you that we and our vision is not large enough. And if we think, you know what, I think we can do this. Sure enough, we can do this on our own. We don't even need to lean on God. Then we have played it far too safe. If we go into this thing with no fear, no trepidation, trepidation, no sense of risk, then we are going in the wrong direction. And so in looking at the difference between the Red Sea when they crossed the Red Sea and the Jordan River, Craig Barnes says, you know, here's something that's kind of interesting. That when they crossed over the Red Sea, those waters parted, and then the Israelites started walking over. But he said, not so with the Jordan River. In fact, if you look at Joshua 3, verse 13, here's, here's the instruction given. When the soles of the feet of the priest who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan flowing from above shall be cut off. They shall stand in a single heap. In other words, only after they put a foot into the murky, slippery water, only after that, 
did the walls of the water begin to dam up. Only after, now thousands of years later, we think, oh, that makes all the sense in the world. Easy peasy. But you can rest assured if you were one of those 12 priests and you had all of these people behind you and they're like, lead the way, priest. And you've got the Ark of the Covenant and you're walking toward this Jordan River that is just flowing by. You can rest assured that they're thinking to themselves, this could go really badly. And yet, they put their foot in and they kept marching forward. Despite the fear, despite the step of faith that they knew it was, they took that step anyway. It's easy, 40 years later now, for us to think, oh, what Pete Hudson did what Wanda Baker did, you know, when they said, let's start a church, when they bought this land and the realtor said, oh, you guys are fools for buying this land. That was easy. Look how it turned out. I can assure you that in that moment, right before they stepped in to sign off on purchasing this, and right before they said, okay, we're gonna charter this church and see what happens, that it felt remarkably risky, that it was this incredible step of faith. Make no mistake about it. From our perspective, it seems like it was easy, but from their perspective, it took an inordinate amount of risk to put their foot into that murky water and say, we are going to keep moving steady, stable, and plodding. And what I want you to know this morning, sisters and brothers in Christ, is that even though our footing may not always be known, and even though nobody can assure you of what the outcome to all of this will be, that we never go forward alone. And we take steps of risky faith. Because this is who God always calls his people to be and his people to do. It is who we are. For Christ's glory and for his glory alone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, you call us into places where we do not always know what our feet are going to step on or how wet we will end up getting. And yet, Lord, you call us to a life that says we are about so much more than just who we are. We are about following you. And so I pray, Lord, that you would be with us wherever we are that we would know that we are loved by you, that we would know that we are called by you. Help us to know what these bricks mean. It's in your name we pray. Amen.